That's great stuff, isn't it? Boy, what a blessing it is to uh, to be part of a church that has such a focus on seeing people come to faith in Christ. My name is Jim Kilgore. I have the privilege of being the executive pastor of operations here at Bethel Church. I also will let you know that once a year they let me out of my cage so that I can preach to you. This is my shot. I'll go back into my cage. Hopefully you'll hear from me next year. Uh, I need, uh, need a little help. We're going to do uh, kind of a first ever Bethel Church survey. So uh, I'd like everybody to stand, including those of you in the balcony. Hopefully you won't get vertigo standing up there. Okay, everybody's standing. Now, if Bethel is the only church that you have ever been part of, this is, this is your church. You've never been part of any other church. Sit down. Okay, great. The rest of you standing, you have all been part of another church, right? Nod your heads. It's hard for me to see in the light, so big nods help me. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, now, those of you standing, you've been part of another church. If you have never been part of a church split, if you've never been hurt in a local church, if you've never seen, you know, seen people just chewed up in a local church because of all kinds of issues, disappointed, falling out, any other issues or problems, if you've been part of a perfect church, would you please sit down? <gasps> oh, my. It looks like pretty much all of us have been sliced, diced, and julienned, and fried by some of the best, right? Yeah. Okay, go ahead and sit down, sit down. Uh, and you probably have already guessed it. The message today is going to be focused on conflict in the church, problems within the church. Uh, I was a youth pastor back uh, in the late 70s. Yes, it was before the time of the Internet. I think the Earth's crust was just hardening back then. Uh, you know, it was uh, dinosaurs uh, had just finished roaming the Earth, so it was a while back. But I was a pastor of this church in North Carolina, and it had gotten started back in the late 40s. By the time I became their youth pastor, they'd already gone through seven church splits. Now, the thing that was funny was that the name of the church was Unity Baptist Church. I just this <laughs> thought that was funny. Thank you for laughing. Last night, they looked at me like they had, you know, like I had a third eyeball. They just didn't get the joke. You guys are really sharp with it today. In Mike Minter's blog, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he shares about the anatomy of a church conflict. See if any of you can relate to this process or procedure. An offense occurs. A biased view is shared with friends. Friends then take up the offense. Sides begin to form. Suspicions on both sides develop. Each side looks for evidence to confirm their suspicion, and you can be sure that they're going to find it. Exaggerated statements are made, and things that they wish they hadn't said, they, they did say. Third parties get involved, never accurately transferring the information from one offended party to the other. Past offenses begin to surface. Integrity is then challenged. People call each other liars. Church leaders trying to solve the problem are blamed for not following the proper procedure, and then they become the new focus, and then finally many people are hurt and they just leave. There's a man who was shipwrecked for uh, seven years all by himself. And uh, finally a rescue ship came by, and uh, the captain of the ship was standing there, you know, on the, uh, the beach with the fella and kind of looking around and said, man, how did you, how did you survive all by yourself for, for seven long years? He said, well, you know, I eat a lot of bananas and eat a lot of coconuts and uh, eat a lot of fish. The guy said, man, that's, that's amazing. Well, I, I, what are these things over here? And he was pointing to, to, you know, three different little huts that he had. And he said, well, you know, the first one, that's, that's, where, that's where I live. And, uh, the second one, you know, uh, I'm a Christian, and so needed a place to, to worship. 
And the guy said, uh, you know, well, hey, what, what about the third one? I said, well, a few years ago I had a church split, and that's the other church. <laughs> Isn't that just difficult? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been studying the book of Acts this entire summer, and, and we've come to know that the church has been established by God to proclaim his glory among the nations. And it's been marvelous as, we, as we've looked at all the great things that God was doing to start the church. And when we look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47, we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, man, that sound great. I mean, man, that is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church you probably want to be a part of. That's the kind of church that I would like to pastor. But here's a reality check. That is not reality. It was a momentary snapshot of a particular slice in time in the book of Acts. All vision eventually degenerates into work. And for work to get done... People have to get involved. And when people get involved, I can guarantee you that there will be problems. You cannot read the rest of the book of Acts and not see problems in the church. You cannot read the entire New Testament and not find a single church without a problem. It is rife throughout the scriptures. Soon after Pentecost, you have lying in the church. You have ethnic conflict. You have theological division. You have leaders fighting among one another. And on and on it goes. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Sounds like most of the churches that most of us have been part of. And sounds like some of the churches that we have left. So hang on, because we're going to take a bumpy ride into the underbelly of the church of Acts. So what kind of church conflicts do we see in the book of Acts? What were the sources of these various conflicts? So hopefully you have your Bibles because uh, we're going to be looking throughout the scriptures, throughout uh, the book of Acts and several of the passages in the New Testament. They'll be up on the screens behind me, but would like you to uh, certainly follow along. First of all, we see that there was misunderstanding and poor communication. Acts chapter 11. Verses 1 through 18. Won't read the entire passage, just bits and pieces of it here, but follow along with me if you would. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Well, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision and something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and and 
all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and then sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, skipping down just a little bit. And then the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How many times have you had this happen? You've been in a position of leadership or just something in the church and God just gives you a burden and a passion to want to go do something. And it might be new and different and unique. And guess what? Boom, you get shot and blasted. Man, I've had that happen numerous, numerous times. Poor Peter. You know, he is just simply being obedient to what God told him to do. And before he even gets a chance to get back to Jerusalem and explain it to the other leaders, gossip. And rumors and misunderstanding already started. The word had already gotten there. What had happened, basically, Peter had stayed behind so that he could minister to these new believers. And, you know, he was spending time with them. And yet the word got out way before he could show up in Jerusalem. And so that's where the problems began to get started. And so he shows up in Jerusalem. And the moment that he gets there, the leaders just jump all over him. Now, that's Southern. That's a, a Jim Kilgore translation of the word criticized. So he gets all jumped all over. So what happens? These guys are probably saying things like, man, what is wrong with you, Peter? I mean, don't you have any regard for the Bible? Because right here, clearly it states that Jews and Gentiles are not supposed to have anything to do with one another. I mean, you stayed in their homes. Man, you probably even ate a ham sandwich. What is wrong with you? You're supposed to be our leader. You're just showing absolute disregard for the scriptures. Man, you just can't do that. And notice what Peter did. He didn't try to avoid the confrontation. He gave a very straightforward description of what God did. He dealt with it quickly, and the issue was resolved. Look at verse 18. And when they heard these things, as he went through and described everything that had gone on, actually, previously it happened in chapter 10, if you want to look at that. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Ah, Great lesson for us here. Great lesson. James actually kind of defines it here in verse uh, 19 of chapter 1. He said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, don't jump to conclusions about the leaders of your church. Leadership is a very weighty thing. And especially when leaders sense God's moving, God's leading into new areas of ministry, that's a challenge. And that is very hard. Those of you that are leaders, let me tell you this. The definition of a leader is like a pioneer. And, you know, the definition of a pioneer is the guy with the most arrows in his back. All right. So that just kind of happens. All right. Congregation. We don't like change. Here's another phrase for you. Nobody likes change except a wet baby. And even he cries about it. Okay. So second thing that we see in the book of Acts as far as conflict within the church Differences over values, differences over gifts and and priorities. Acts chapter 15, if you would, look at that, verses 36 through 41. 
Now, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and, and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers by the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Don't you just hate it? When you were just close to somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, you worshiped together with them, maybe you went on a missions trip with them, you prayed together, you just loved Jesus together. And then there was some kind of falling out. And, you know, and sometimes, in some cases, relationships just can't be fixed. They're hard and just can't be repaired. Barnabas had been mentoring Paul for years. Barnabas reached out to Paul when no one, and I mean no one, would have anything to do with him. And Barnabas saw within Paul what, obviously, God was putting into Paul, leadership, skills, boldness a love for Christ. And God used Barnabas to draw that out over the years. So now Barnabas is ready to go with Paul because they wanted to go out and minister to some of the saints, you know, the people that had come to Christ on the first missionary journey. Barnabas, like I said, is ready to go. Uh, and he wants to bring along this other young man who had been with him previously, John Mark. Now, back in chapter 13 of Acts, we read that pretty quickly into this first missionary journey, John Mark left. Now, we don't know why he left. Seems like he was a young man. Maybe he was uh, scared. Uh, Maybe he felt too much pressure from spiritual warfare and just the very nature of ministry. Uh, We don't know if he got homesick. We just don't know. But he left. And when he left, obviously it upset Paul. It upset Paul so much that he continued to think about this so that when Barnabas was ready to bring him on to the second trip, Paul said, no way. It's just not going to happen. He left us once. He's going to leave us again. Now, Barnabas probably saw in John Mark the very same qualities that he had seen in Paul and wanted to develop those. But again, because of this great rift, that just wasn't going to happen. Look again at verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Paul and Barnabas, best friends, split. Sometimes God allows conflict to create something new. God allowed conflict and persecution earlier in the book of Acts where he scattered the saints so that they could go out and continue focusing on fulfilling the Great Commission. So he did something hard to create something new. And conflict in the church actually can be a good thing. Where there was one missionary team, Paul and Barnabas, now you got two. You have Barnabas and John Mark going on to Cyprus, and you have Paul and Silas moving on to Turkey. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when when leaders butt heads. That is a natural part of life. It's actually a natural part of growing up. Anybody here have teenagers? Need I say any more? Okay, all right. Teenagers can drive you crazy with their independence. And it can just make you even mad and angry. But stop and think about that. Isn't that independence the very thing that you want them to develop? You want them to grow up and go out. That's the goal. 
And in order to do that, they have to sometimes express that independence. And sometimes that can create tension and you can butt heads. But that's what you want because you want them to be able to make decisions. And in choosing a spouse and, and knowing what to do at college and, and being able to, to manage themselves at the job. So there's so many different issues related to teenagers. Well, you know what? The same thing is true even within the church. You know, we have had some wonderful, marvelous young leaders that have been part of Bethel Church. And guess what? They grew up and they grew up and they went out. Now, is that a bad thing? No, of course not. We should be so excited about the time that God has allowed them to serve with us. And we should be as equally excited about the places that they're going to go and that they're going to serve. Isn't that marvelous what God does? Third thing that we see in the book of Acts, as far as sources of conflict, is that there's a frustration over resources. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You follow along with me, please. And now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, it wasn't a bunch of uh, women named Helen, that means folks are from the Greek perspective, rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's what's happening. The church is growing, and the demands upon the apostles are 24-7. They're tired. Things just aren't getting done. This leads to frustration. The widows of this young church are dependent upon these men to distribute the food to them. And you know what? They're getting hungry. And because things are happening more and more, because the disciples, the apostles, are having greater demands on proclaiming and teaching the word of God, they have less and less and less time to minister to the needs of the widows. Remember back in Acts chapter 2 that we just read earlier, where they were selling all their goods and belongings, and they're buying food, and they're serving one another? Well, that's what was happening. But it wasn't happening efficiently. It wasn't happening effectively. You know what they needed? They needed an executive pastor of operations. Didn't have one. So instead, what they decided to do, the apostles called themselves together. They got together with some godly men, and they basically focused on, you know what? Our gifts are in one area, and we need to find people who have gifts in another area. There are problems, issues that they had to deal with, different ethnicities, different cultures within church, probably different uh, language issues, and they're running short of time. So uh, the widows are feeling hungry. They're feeling neglected. Tempers are flaring, anger is rising, and there is a lot of complaining in the church. Sure sounds like a church, doesn't it? Complain, complain, complain. Bethel is so big. You know, I really don't matter here. Now that Pastor Steve is getting married, you know, he's just not going to be available to me anymore. Not to mention this whole multi-site thing. (laughs) These goofball screens behind me. 
you know, I'm never going to get to see our pastors again. Why doesn't my ministry get announced from the from the podium, from the stage and in the e-news? Don't they think it's important? Just like the apostles had to make decisions of the best use of their resources, so do we. Good leaders will take the time and work hard at bringing together all the resources that are needed to bear upon the situation. And that's exactly what they did in the book of Acts. They established deacons. And now, guess what? The elders can eld. <laughs> that means they can lead. They can focus on teaching the word of God and focusing on the vision that God has given them. And now they have deacons, and the deacons can deek. They can serve. They can use their hands. They can be engaged in serving people where the needs happen to be. Notice, too, how the people responded, actually, in verses 5 and 6. They trusted their leaders. They were patient. They waited. They got engaged. And instead of getting engaged in criticism, they got engaged in the process. And I love the result. Once the problem was dealt with, people were patient. Look at verse 7. And then the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Last thing we see in the book of Acts as far as tension and conflict within the church is just a direct result of sin. Acts chapter 15 is what we call the Jerusalem Council. I'm not going to read the whole chapter But let me just read just a few of those verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders with this question. So, Being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. You know, sometimes there is just absolute outright sin in the church. And it has to be dealt with. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas were being used by God to bring many, many people to Christ. Most of them were Gentiles. They were non-Jewish. Back in Acts 11 that we just read earlier, the church had already dealt with this. The leaders had already dealt with this very issue about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and not forcing them to become Jewish. But some of the leaders in the church continued to push it. Some of the leaders continued to be disobedient to what the elders had said. Some continued to basically focus on a false doctrine. And they taught that in order to be a Christian, you had to be Jewish. You had to keep the entire Mosaic law. Well, they weren't talking about just simply practicing the Mosaic law. They were saying in order for you to be saved, you've got to be Jewish. And you have to obey all the law. You know, Paul was so upset with these guys. He even called them later on in Galatians 2, false brothers. So they were secretly brought in. You know what? The reality, by this time, the church probably was made up of more Gentiles than Jews. Sounds like an old-fashioned power and control struggle to me. Uh, 
had a seminary professor that told me that 99% of all the problems in the church boil down to power and control. Sure looks like we're seeing it here. These people were upsetting the new faith of these recent believers. You know, it would be like someone saying, well, yeah, you know, it is exactly like Pastor Steve says. You must put your faith in trusting Christ, and it's through the cross that you are saved. We, 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 yes, that's very true. But let me tell you, if you're not giving generously, then you really aren't truly a Christian. You're really not saved. You've got to be doing this too. They were saying it's Jesus and something else. Paul and Barnabas and the scriptures make it very clear. It's Jesus, Jesus alone, nothing else, nothing else. And these folks were making things so difficult, so frustrating, so frightening to these new believers that the church was just about ready to split. So the apostles got together in Jerusalem. That's why it's called the Jerusalem Council. And they talked, they debated, they listened, they searched the scripture, and they sought the Holy Spirit's leading. And then after spending much time, they wrote a letter to these new believers. And this is what they said. They said, uh, and you find this also in Acts 15, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and, and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. Basically said, look, hey, it is Jesus. It is Jesus only. That's it. That's it. Now, for your sanctification, for your growth, don't worry about all the Jewish law. Just, but if you just kind of work on these things over here because of where they were coming from out of these old mystery religions and a lot of demonic issues, he said, you, know, you will grow and you will mature in your faith in Christ. And again, once the conflict was dealt with, in verse 31, we read that they rejoiced and the gospel continued. So what can we learn from all these different examples within the church? Number one, there is absolutely no perfect church. No perfect church. Bethel's not perfect. Churches you came from obviously weren't perfect. So no perfect church. Here's a healthy dose of reality. On my very best day ever on planet Earth, I am still a sick sinner. I am flawed to the core. My DNA down to its very essence, is messed up and is distorted. Yes, I am saved by the grace of Christ, but I am still a sinner. Here's a shocker for you. You brought a sinner onto the pastoral staff of Bethel Church. <gasps> and did you also know that you also selected me as an elder of Bethel Church too? And I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. You know, we'll pass out the tissues soon. There is no perfect church. Not only am I a sinner, but here's a news flash. You are too. Yep. I know a lot of you and I can testify to that. 
Listen to what, uh, what James has to say in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? Is it, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now remember, he's writing to believers, okay? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And that doesn't that sound like a bunch of sinners to you? Selfish, angry, childish. We want our way and we don't, when we don't get it, we crab, we complain, and we even conspire. Sinners to the core. You know what? Look at the rest of the New Testament. It's a church filled with conflict, full of sinners. The entire church is made up of sinners. Yes, saved by the grace of Christ, but sinners to the core nonetheless. Some people, that just bothers. Because they say, you know what, man, my world is full of conflict. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, can't even, I can't even look at the news without seeing conflict all over the world, and it just bothers me. Church ought to be different. Man. Don't, don't get me talking about work. I mean, talk about backstabbing. I mean, there are just blood trails everywhere. Church better be different. Oh, man, don't get me talking about my family. I mean, we could create a reality show, you know, about my family. Matter of fact, the Kilgore family, to speak of us, uh, if for us to have a family reunion, we have to have a jailbreak first. So, I mean, man, we're messed up. We're messed up. You know... If you think that the church should be a perfect place and is a perfect place, then you have a very distorted view of the gospel. Because we are sinners. We're messed up. We're not perfect. And we will have conflict. Just, we just went through this in the book of Acts. Continue going on. You see it again and again and again. Conflict is a natural, normal part of not only everyday life, but even of the church. Because we're flawed to the core. Conflict in the church is unavoidable. But the real issue is not that there shouldn't be conflict in the church. The real issue is how we deal with it. The real issue is not that there are sinners in the church and there's conflict. But it is how we respond to that conflict as believers. So how do we respond? Second, make every effort to resolve and manage the conflict. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's writing through a church that was having conflict, having problems. The reality is that there are going to be fights and there are going to be feuds in the church. And because we are all sinners, we should just realize that. But what should separate us from the rest of the world and from our family and from the marketplace and from the school and from our friends is how we make up, how we handle the conflict. Basically this, play nice. I mean, don't throw sand in the sandbox. Don't bite your friend. Don't knock over their sandcastle. Don't steal their toys. 
be loving and patient and humble and gentle and make every effort to do this in the midst of the conflict. That's what sets us apart. That's what should happen. Yes, we are sinners, but we have been saved by the grace of Christ. And that very grace is at work within us to change us, to transform us, to allow his power, his spirit, his love, his peace, his goodness, his kindness, his gentleness, all of him to come through us to one another. That's what sets us apart. Another thing, keep looking in this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 26 through 27. I don't want you to be ignorant about something very, very important here, that the glory of God, the very glory of God is at stake. Everybody kind of knows verse 26. Be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But very few people forget the very next verse in verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. What's Paul talking about here? Paul says, if there is unresolved anger in any of our lives within the church, remember, he's writing to believers in the church. If you have unresolved anger towards someone else and you're choosing not to deal with it, you're letting it foam up and you're nursing it and you're developing that. Guess what? You now have given the enemy a foothold. Literally in the Greek, it means a marked out area. So for those brothers and sisters in Christ who are still harboring resentment and frustration and anger towards someone else because of a church split, because of pain or whatever issues, and you've not dealt with it, I'm here to tell you what the Scripture says. You have now given the enemy an opportunity to engage not only in your life but in the life of the church. You see, it isn't just like Satan to want to knock us right out of the game. There is no other agency, no other entity that God has placed on planet Earth to declare his glory other than the church. You heard the Plumleys talk about their mission agency are under the local church. If the local church did not exist, if the church did not exist, there would be no one going out to proclaim God's glory among the Gentiles, among anybody. Anybody of the nations, Northwest Indiana, forget it. It's not going to happen. And so if there's this unresolved anger within the church, the enemy then comes in. And I'm not saying, you know, if you have unresolved anger that there's some demon running around inside of you. That's not what the scripture is talking about here. But I will tell you what has happened. You can look at probably many of the churches where some of you came from. Unresolved anger was not dealt with, was not responded to. And guess what? Boom! The enemy just knocked that church right out of the picture. Church that many of us, churches many of us came from after unresolved issues and unresolved anger, never again became effective for the gospel. The church is on mission. God's glory is at stake. So we need to resolve conflict by following just a few biblical principles. We've already talked about the need to love each other and to be aware of the glory of God at stake within the church. So how do I handle things when I'm embroiled in conflict? Number one, just overlook You know, not every offense is a capital offense. Not everything needs to be brought up. Sometimes we just simply need to show grace to the other person and just choose to forgive and just be quiet. First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Second, examine. Why is this still bothering me? Is there some sin in my life? that God is trying to show me that, that I need to respond to, that I need to deal with. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I mean, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Third thing we can do is reconcile. You know, some things just can't be overlooked. And after we've examined things and it's still eating us and and just just destroying us on the inside, well, you're going to have to go to that person and deal with the issue. You have to reconcile. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and just go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And the last thing is mediate. If the issue still isn't resolved and, and you're probably going to need to bring some other people into the situation to try to help you to resolve it. Give them the authority to mediate, to, to resolve this issue, to make a decision, speak into it. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, the reality is that we're all part of a church in conflict. And people get hurt because we're all sinners. Some people get hurt and they leave and they turn their backs on Christ. Every single one of us probably have a friend that has said something to this effect. You'll never see me darken the door of a church again because of pain that they suffered within the church. Some of us still might be nursing hurts that are old and we have become stale in our faith because we haven't been able to deal with those issues. And we're unwilling to risk serving. We hear about the need for serving here at one of our multi-sites or yeah, here at Bethel and said, <laughs> not me. Man, I've been there, done that, you know. Once burned, twice remembered. Not going to count me. Well, that's not good. I can tell you, if you're going to be around a church, you're probably going to get hurt. One of my seminary profs said that there are two absolute non-negotiables that are critical to being in the ministry. One, you have to have the heart of a saint. Two, you have to have the hide of a rhino. And he was true. Look at what James has to say in verse uh, 14 through 18 of chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and, and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace by those who make peace. If you've been hurt, you need to stop and you need to consider the source. There's some people that have been used by the enemy within a local church to chew up, spit out, to destroy. If that's the case, blow it off. Don't have anything to do with it. It's kind of like this. Now, don't get excited. I'm not going to put on a hockey mask and run around the church, okay? Okay, I'm not going postal or anything like that. Chainsaw is designed to cut, right? You get cut by a chainsaw, you're going to know it. 
but it is designed to destroy. Now I have here a scalpel. Yes, a real scalpel, but without the blade because someone told me they would cut my finger off and my fingers won't grow back. This scalpel is also designed to cut and it will hurt, but it will heal. The wisdom that comes from the enemy is a chainsaw. Consider the source. Deal with it. Get beyond it. But if some brother or sister in Christ came to you with grace and with humility and with care, yeah, it might hurt, but it's by God designed to help you to grow, to mature, to heal. Some of you still hurt from your old wounds that have never healed. And some of you are nursing fresh wounds from someone that the enemy tried to uh, destroy you within the church. Maybe you're still angry, confused, and in pain. You need to start putting into practice the very things that we've talked about today. Reconcile, overlook, mediate, deal with the issue. Look to Jesus. You know what? We are a church full of hypocrites. And the moment that we start looking at one another and one another only and take our eyes off of Christ, all we're going to see will be the conflict and the problems. But when we put our eyes focused clearly on Christ, things change. Things change. Would you join me in prayer?